G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Life, Culture and Current Events from a Biblical Perspective, 2020 on Vision. We're going to be talking about a topic that really comes down to making the family court the last resort. And while we do all we can to encourage strong marriage and family relationships, of course, we do have a touch of reality in there and recognizing that where the rubber hits the road, separations and divorce do happen in the best Christian homes. And the ramifications, of course, extend broadly throughout the entire extended families of those who are going through such a crisis. So while the statistics might show that being a Christian and connected to a local church is one of the best protections for your marriage, not everyone will be immune from family pressures, separations and even divorce. Well, our conversation today is around the practical things that people can do to minimize the likelihood of ending up in court if they're going through a separation. Some expert advice today. Stephen Potts is a family law specialist, managing director of Newman and Turner Lawyers in Brisbane. A special welcome back to you, Stephen, to 2020. It's good to be back, Neil. Stephen, what a, another conversation uh, like this. And uh, sometimes some people might be thinking this is a bit unusual for the Christian station to be talking about divorce mm-hmm. because we're always wanting to encourage good, strong marriages. And uh, we've had this conversation before when we've opened up on segments like this because we are going to get into some of the nitty-gritty things, uh, what you do to actually uh, preserve your your uh, sanity, I mm. think it might be, is a, probably a good word to use when you're going through these family breakdown challenges. You would see, from your point of view, the messiness that happens in people's lives when they are coming to you uh, and looking for advice when it comes to their marriage and their separation. Yeah, that's right. And often by the time they've come to see me, the situation's pretty bad. Most of the time people don't come and see me before they've separated. Usually the the horse has bolted, so to speak, on that the, the separation's already occurred. Sometimes it's it's very fresh. Sometimes it might have lingered for a long time. People might have been separated for a year or more and not done anything about it. So there's a very broad range of experiences that people bring to that process, and it can often be very messy. And um, I think what we're talking about today in terms of how to, how to approach a separation in a way which is least likely to lead to long-term conflict is actually a helpful way of, of addressing that because the longer people sit in long-term conflict, the more damage they do to each other, the more damage they do to themselves, the more damage they do to their children, and the more difficult it becomes to make long-term parenting arrangements for their kids, for example. I imagine that there'll be couples who will get to a point where they separate and then there'll be uh, perhaps one out of the two partners holding an eternal 
you know, a flame that might, you know, expect sometimes is going to be a breakthrough and a reconciliation. Another partner might be completely opposite to that. And then you might go through the times when you've separated and then there's going to be counselling that you might go through. Mm. Uh, You might be inviting one another to get together and try and resolve the issues. When you say uh, the longer you leave it, uh, sometimes things get worse or is there a is there a sort of uh, ideal time if you're if you're looking at these things? I imagine you have to face reality at some point. Yeah, it's difficult. A lot of it comes down to practical considerations. So if you've got people who are prepared to sit down and talk and can and uh, can work with a counsellor, then obviously that's ideal. And the sooner that you sit down and begin that process, the better. So if someone does come to me and they've not yet separated, they want to know where they might stand. I'll give them that advice, but I also like to talk through the options with them for counsellors that they may be able to go and see, some other options to sit down and see whether they can work on those issues, because if they've not yet separated, then there's still plenty of hope to restore that relationship. People who have been separated for a long time, I've still had clients who've reconciled and got back together, and um, that's fantastic when it happens. Sadly, it's not that common, but it it does happen. Um, But the longer people are separated and they're not receiving any professional assistance to work through that process, my experience is it's more difficult for them to reconcile and the the situation usually deteriorates because whatever was bad in the first place that might have precipitated the separation is only likely to be accentuated with time as mistrust grows up where trust used to exist. Steve, we're going to talk today about making the family court the last resort. And uh, here we are talking to you, a specialist family lawyer. Uh, in some sense, uh, this is your bread and butter, that uh, that there will be people who will come to you and uh, they'll be needing your advice and they'll want to go through the whole process mm. into the courts and before a family court judge. Uh, there's a certain sense in here where uh, I know your heart is to keep people out of the family court, but of course there's an industry runs here isn't there so when you actually do talk to a lawyer uh, how do you make sense of whether the lawyer has your best interest at heart or whether they're simply lining their own wallet sure well that's very hard for someone who's never consulted a lawyer before to make a decision like that one of the things that I experienced when I first started as a lawyer was that most of the people who came and saw me had never seen a lawyer before because unless you're say in business and you're engaging with a lawyer for business transactions or perhaps you've bought a home, you might have dealt with a lawyer then, but even even then, nowadays you don't even speak to the lawyer. Often it's all done by email or you, you don't see the lawyer face-to-face. It's all done by email and phone calls and things like that. So for a lot of people who come to, um, and see a family lawyer for the first time, that may well be the very first lawyer they've seen. It can be very difficult to know the motivations of the lawyer at that particular point in time. I think that there are some things that you can do that help, like look for people who are accredited specialists because, or have expertise in family law who've practised in family law for a long period of time because um, most family lawyers that I know, certainly in the jurisdiction where I practise, work pretty hard to keep people out of the court system. Not everybody, but most people do because um, most family lawyers, their, their work comes from people who've referred um, other clients to them and nobody wants to refer the lawyer that kept them in court for five years they want the lawyer who got them through the process as fast as possible okay when you give an idea of that sort of time frame mm. is this often or sometimes the case that a family law dispute that leads to divorce can last as long as five years oh yeah easily yeah so let me give you some really basic kind of maths on the on the amount of time that you might be in the court system if 
If a parent, let's say it's a parenting dispute, they tend to move quicker than property disputes, but let's say a parent um, has gone through the media, compulsory mediation process and started their application, where I practice in, in Brisbane, it would take you about eight to ten weeks at a minimum to get your first day in front of the judge. On that particular day, an interim order is likely to be made about what happens in the short term for the care of your children, and then the court would set out some directions for what needs to happen to gather more information. So that might include people putting some affidavits on, gathering some more evidence. It might mean that uh, people need to go off and see a, a social worker or a, um, a psychologist who might prepare a report, and that's going to take a few months. You need to book a time. You need to go and see that person. That person needs to prepare the report. Then the report needs to come back, and um, and everybody needs to have a think about it, and then you'll be back in front of the judge for some further discussion. Now, if the uh, issues are narrow enough at that point in time, the court might set it down for a trial, but it's it's my experience that the issues are not usually that narrow that quick. There might be other evidence that needs to be um, found. There might be medical evidence that's required, schooling records or things like that. So sometimes subpoenas need to be issued. So by the time you've got through that process, you'd be lucky to be back in front of the judge, say, six months after when you first filed the application. And then um, you would... If you were otherwise all ready to go, you'd probably be placed in a trial pool. In other words, a list of matters that are in the court system that are ready and waiting for a judge, and you'd be allocated a trial. Um, that can be anywhere between about six and nine months. At the moment, I'm getting uh, dates in Brisbane that are into July already for next year for trial. So that's eight months away. Um, when you turn up on that day, you're not guaranteed to be the only matter in front of the judge on that day. So you might have spent a lot of money, spent a lot of time, psyched yourself up, prepared for your opportunity in the witness box and you don't get started that day um, and so you get adjourned off it might be a couple more months before you get another trial so now we're talking sometime maybe 18 months after when you first started and then the the other thing that a lot of people um, um, assume is that when you finish the trial the judge will give a decision invariably that never happens the judge needs to sit down and reread the affidavits think over the evidence that's been given particularly if there's experts They've got to weigh that expert evidence. They've got to weigh your evidence in the witness box. They need to listen to the submissions that have been made by the lawyers on your behalf and then make their decision. And that's still going to be several months before they make that decision. You know, in, um, in the best of cases, you might get it in a month or two, but realistically, it's, it's not going to be less than four months in my experience. Sometimes they can stretch well over a year before you get a judgment. So now we're two and a half years down the track for what might be a fairly straightforward matter. Well, I think you're convincing me that uh, you really have to avoid oh, the situation of going through the family court to, in fact, achieve that divorce. Uh, what is it that's driving most people? Now, obviously, you'll have clients, potentially some listening, but uh, what is it drives people? Is it that they're having a, this animosity, almost a, a hatred for one another, that they realise that uh, they want to, you know, this one-upmanship, they want to get they want to be the winner when it comes to some sort of level of uh, resolution. So uh, what is it that's driving people? Look, animosity is certainly um, a big, difficult issue to deal with. Um, it's not the only issue. Often um, people who have separated, communication has already broken down. And when communication breaks down, that makes the whole process much more difficult because all of a sudden there's immediately a layer of distrust so nobody believes what the other person says. So then there's often a longer process through which people have to prove their point. Now, that might be because they, they gather other evidence or they need to produce something independent to satisfy the other person. So there's a, there's a little bit of that. That slows things down. Sometimes people bear a lot of um, 
um, hurt from the from the relationship and they, they see this as an opportunity of maybe evening up the, the ledger. Other times, um, cases just have very difficult fact scenarios. They're not they're not easy answers. Um, people's lives are not simple. Um, people's finances sometimes are not simple. Sometimes their children might have very um, significant needs or special needs. And so it's not the case that you can just apply a simple solution. Sometimes those solutions require a lot of time to work through and, and children um, adapt to change at different paces. So sometimes we've got to move incrementally to get to a point where um, everybody can say, yep, I'm okay with that and sign off on it. Well, Steve, making the family court the last resort, uh, that's our goal over this hour, and I'll invite listeners to participate in our conversation. We will open our talkback lines, and we'll get to you as soon as we can, but you might have your own scenario that you'd like to present uh, to Steve Potts today, uh, or you might have a question, or you might have a comment to make. There's also, uh, so our talkback line open on 1-800-316-316. You can also leave a comment or a question question on our Facebook page. Sometimes when we talk about these sorts of issues, you may want to remain anonymous. That's fine today too. But Steve, let's come to some of those things. Making the family court the last resort. Uh, Let's talk about some of the ways that you can actually put a foundation in place so that you can avoid all of the strenuous difficulty and the tearing apart and the expense and everything that you've explained. Uh, Where would you start to say, okay, I'm not going to let that happen? Uh, Where do you start? I think the first place is you need to open up some kind of a communication channel. A lot of my time uh, is spent dealing with the fact that communication is not working anymore. So we need to have a think about what ways um, people can engage with each other again in a safe way, in a constructive way. So sometimes it's not safe for people to talk one-on-one. There might be domestic violence. There might have been a long history of domestic violence. It's not safe for them to have those kinds of discussions. Um, and in, if if that's the scenario, then we need to look at some external measures that could be put in place. But leaving that to the side, we need to think through some ways in which people can have meaningful discussions about what needs to happen. Um, and that there's a whole range of practical solutions that can be done there. And usually it's not a family member because family members tend to take sides. Uh, so mm. when you're looking for someone who is external, mm. someone who might be able to, uh, you know, uh, keep uh, uh, some confidences. Mm. Uh, so you're looking for someone who is a professional. And so then it could be the lawyer or it could be a counsellor. That's right. Yeah. Counsellors would certainly be my first recommendation because a counsellor will be able to address some of the underlying issues that have led to the the breakdown of the relationship. Lawyers tend to find legal solutions for problems. They're not particularly good at finding emotional or um, relational solutions to problems. Whereas counsellors, that's their expertise and their training. And, and the first port of call would be to them to say, this is the history of our relationship um, and, and get some insight from them as to what might be able to uh, address those issues. And look, some of those issues might be simply poor communication. People have not communicated about what they, what their needs are or their, their feelings are or uh, how they've been hurt. And so there's uh, decreasing areas that are available to talk about. People just close off areas of their lives and then all they're left with is a very narrow set of topics that they're prepared to talk about. Sometimes a counsellor can help open up some of those doors to those rooms that have closed and restart the dialogue. So that's that's usually you know the first place to start. So you open up a avenue of communication. Uh, that's a good foundation to put in place. Then you have to be able to uh, assess, mm. I guess, your own side and uh, what the other side might want uh, by way of actually working out how you're about to approach the negotiation. 
Yeah. So one of the one of the um, things that's really helpful is to think about the practical way in which people communicate. So you and I are sitting across from each other and we're talking face to face and that works well because you and I get on well. But if there's already distrust there or we feel like somebody's going to overpower us or there's a power imbalance between us, then we're re- very reluctant to talk face to face about those issues. So we might want to revert to a, a mode of communication that gives us a bit more time to think, maybe a bit less uh, reactive, emotional reactive kind of a response and a bit more thought provoke, you know, a thoughtful response. So simply putting things in writing rather than talking face-to-face or on a phone. You know, people often get into yelling matches. They hang, well, it's a bit funny with, you know, mobile phones today. You can't even slam the phone down. You just, you just cut it out. But there's, yeah. there's not that same release of slamming a phone. But um, trying to find ways in which you can communicate is really important. So find a practical solution. Some people say, look, we're only going to email each other. Um, I've, I've had some familiarity with uh, parents who've uh, use little apps. You can buy, you know, download apps from the App Store or from a Google App Store, where the communications between the parents go backwards and forwards in this app, and that's a good way of just keeping uh, some boundaries around that communication. Um, one of the things that I find helpful is to make sure uh, I tell my clients this, and I, I do the same thing. You know, on my phone I have my emails; they always come into my phone. I run two different. Um, mail apps on my phone. So all my work emails come into one app and all my personal emails come into the other app. And for my work emails, I don't have a notification badge go off. So it doesn't doesn't tell me whether I've got a new email or not. I only know that by checking the app. And that's just one of the ways that I make sure that when I'm at home and I'm with my kids and I'm doing things on the weekend and I'm not getting distracted by work stuff. Whereas personal stuff, I don't mind if that comes into my phone. Now, if you take that principle and you apply it to a parenting dispute, one of the things you could do is say, all right, well, I'm going to use this particular email address for dealing with all of the issues relating to our separation or relating to our kids. And I'm going to run that email address through this particular app and I'm not going to put notifications on it because I'm not going to let it come in and annoy me while I'm talking to the kids and things like that. I'll check that email account in my own time after the kids have gone to bed where they're not going to see me react or get upset about it. And I think that that's a really helpful way of just putting a bit of space between people and allowing them to communicate without it interfering with the way in which they parent their children, for example. So the technology gives us a capacity to be able to manage the way that we might be going through at this time of crisis. And uh, and that can be a, a very uh, good addition to uh, just keeping, as we were saying, uh, you know, keeping a level of sanity while you're going through this process. Yeah, and so you, what you need to do is work out what communication technique is going to be the most effective. I, I think email is a pretty effective way of doing that because you've got the opportunity to write more detail if you need or attach documents and things like that. Text messages tend to be a little bit uh, more difficult because you, unless you really love writing long novels of text messages, you can't convey the same kind of information. But it's good in an emergency if you need to contact someone quickly or say I'm running 15 minutes late or stuck in traffic or something like that. That's helpful. I think having a technique. The other thing that I've seen that's worked quite well is um, parents who set some ground rules about the way in which they'll communicate in emails. So I'm sure like, um, like me and Neil, you've, received emails from some people who just love to write pages and pages and pages of emails. Yeah. And that can be very um, unhelpful when you're trying to work through a problem because you're trying to, well, what's the issue? What do I actually need to respond to on that? So one of the things that I've seen worked uh, well a couple of times is parents create some um, some ground rules about the ways in which they will communicate with each other in their emails. So they might, in the subject header of the of the email, say response required or for your information, or there might be a series of different categories into which they they um, address their emails. 
But if it says FYI, you don't have to respond to it. It's just some information. It might be about a school event that's coming up or something like that. Whereas it might say response required and you have an agreement that you'll respond within a certain period of time. That might be a day or two days or something like that. And you try and limit those emails to only a few bullet points. So the person's not having to sit there and think, okay, I need to set aside half an hour to write a response to this. Just a quick couple of bullet points, response required. So just having some ground rules there actually helps the communication flow a lot better. A biblical perspective on life, culture and current events. This is 2020 on Vision Christian Radio. Well, I think it's the best advice you'll get from a family law specialist. Stephen Potts, our guest this hour. Our talkback line open on 1-800-316-316. Some Facebook messages coming through, Steve. Uh, Let me just uh, read one from Stephanie who says, I've been through great pain, losing parents, losing a baby, but this is the worst kind of pain, divorce. If you're a Christian, pray about your marriage. God hates divorce. It does not eliminate pain. It creates more pain and heartache. Fight for your marriage. I guess this is something you live with day to day with the sorts of people that you're in contact with. But uh, the painfulness of divorce just so uh, just so described so well by Stephanie. Yeah, and I would I would um, affirm what she says one hundred percent. Fight for fight for your marriage and do everything that you can because. Um, the last place you want to be is in a solicitor's office talking about a relationship breakdown or even actually probably the, the last place you want to be is in the family court, <laughs> but the second last place you want to be is in a, in a solicitor's office. Another note from Carter who says, do not divorce if possible. It's not worth it. And I think, uh, I think you know, there's not worth it on so many different dimensions. That's right. And, and the more that you can um, avoid being in court and the more that you can uh, do things that improve your relationship, you strengthen your marriage, um, the better. That's one of the things that's fantastic about this station is that its its primary focus is always to build up marriage. Well, you might like to join our conversation. Our talkback line open on 1-800-316-316. Perhaps you have a scenario, maybe your own story, perhaps your own experience in the family court, and uh, perhaps you can affirm whether these things that we're hearing today are as true for you as they have been for so many others. Uh, Let's come back to some of these ways that you can make the family court the last resort. Uh, We spent some time talking about how you really need to open those lines of communication uh, Mm. one to another, and sometimes that needs uh, extra parties involved and some ground rules for how that communication works. We just started to talk about the negotiation, what Mm. you're doing to actually present your side so that you're not being trampled over by the other partner. This negotiation process very important, Steve. Yeah, that's right. And there's a whole there's a whole range of ways in which a negotiation might occur. I guess when I use the word negotiation, I'm I'm really thinking about it in its most basic terms, which is offers going backwards and forwards, or or, or points of discussion going backwards and forwards, and that can that can occur in a whole range of forms. So mediation is one forum, but it's it's not the only way in which people negotiate. They can negotiate by email. They can negotiate face to face. They can negotiate with uh, lawyers helping them. And I think. What you need to do before you start that process of of negotiation is work out what are the core issues that we we really need to deal with. It's very easy to lose sight of the core issues that need to be addressed. And there could be all kinds of other little scenarios and people can chase rabbit holes and try and... uh, try and narrow down the issues is one of the important things. So I think taking the time to sit down and identify, okay, what are the really big issues here that we need to sort out? Do we need to sort out 
parenting arrangements for our kids? Do we need to sort out where one of us is going to live? Do we need to sort out um, how we're going to pay the mortgage over the next little while while we work through this process? So actually sitting down and taking the time to identify those really practical, pragmatic things is really important because if you don't address them um, in a logical fashion, it's going to just really extend the amount of time it takes to finish um, the negotiations. It's just going to drag on forever. I imagine that those top priorities for the negotiation are going to be similar every time, but I suspect that when you get some professional advice, uh, it helps to you know for you to understand that the penny drops and you go, of course, now I realise what's most important to me. Mm. This idea of actually prioritising those things, uh, you know, children, uh, parenting arrangements, as you say, and then of course uh, how you deal with your assets in common, uh, this idea of property and how you might separate all of those things, they are going to be the sorts of things people deal with, but but perhaps people not necessarily always prioritising those because that's what their priority is rather than just having a list to deal with. Yeah, um, and that's where time is important. You've got to sit down and take the time to think through this. And people have, I guess, misconceptions about what has to happen or must happen, Um when there's when there's risks to children or there's risks of family violence, then obviously that becomes the top priority. You need to make sure that people are safe and that they're protected and that they're not being placed at risk of harm. Um, and sometimes it, you might need an urgent application to a court, or you might need to make a you know call the police, for example, and have them um, bring an application for a protection order or, or remove somebody. But most of the time, if you can sit down and identify, okay, what do we need to do, and what's the time frame that we can realistically work through that, because People are still working. Their kids are still going to school. Um, they've still got other commitments that they've got to meet. How are we going to make sure that we set aside some time to talk through these issues, knowing that we don't have the same agreement as to who's going to do what anymore? So it's not going to be a simple, yes, let's have a quick discussion about this and reach an agreement. It might actually be a drawn-out uh, negotiation, and so allowing a bit more time for that. You know, people have an unrealistic expectation about how long it might take to agree on some of these points. I imagine it gets easier if you've got the facts at hand and going through a process of actually uh, finding valuations, you know, the cars, the house, uh, uh, all of those sorts of documents that mm. might be required are going to make things, you know, if you've got something to work with, you can negotiate a whole lot more effectively. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, any time you go and see a lawyer, the first thing the lawyer is going to really ask you is to give you some background, to give me some background facts so that I can actually give you some proper advice. So the things that are really helpful are understanding what it is that you own and what it's worth. I know it sounds really basic, but a lot of people just assume or they're not sure. And so there's a lot of ways that you can narrow that information down simply and practically without incurring a lot of expense. Things like a house, you can simply ask a couple of real estate agents to give you an appraisal. Now, that won't cost you any money. It, it might take a few days to work that out, but um, it's cheaper than paying a registered valuer to do it. It's not as accurate immediately, but it will at least get some information in front of you to be able to make a realistic expectation of, of what that house is worth, maybe get two or three to do it. If nobody's going to be in a position to keep the home, you probably don't need to pay for evaluation because when the house sells, the market will determine the price. But at least in the interim, you can say, okay, well, the range is between X and Y. Things like cars, 
You can have them easily valued online with some online tools. There's one called redbook.com.au, I think it is. Um, you can punch in the make, model and year of your car and it'll give the average Ks and give you an average trade-in price and an average uh, private sale price. So that's a good way of getting some background information on things like that. Um, bank statements are usually fairly easy because you can pull those details off a off an online statement for whatever the current balance is. Um, share portfolios, you can really usually gather those just simply by looking at the paper or the ASX website, asx.com.au, and putting in the shares and working out how many there are. So really finding out what that pool of assets is is pretty straightforward, um, at least in a preliminary stage. And even superannuation, If this is one of the issues that people often get confused about is the super. Stephen, just before the news, we mentioned one of those things that's difficult to work out and somehow rather you need to do some research and find out how all this works Mm. was around this issue of superannuation. Mm. Uh, Let's just talk about finances and divorce for a few moments because this can be one of those areas that gets very, uh, you know, very messy, can't Mm. it? Yeah, superannuation is one of those areas where historically it wasn't considered property, so it just stayed with whoever owned it when people separated. And, of course, that led to very um, inequitable outcomes, particularly for women who had stayed in the um, in the home to look after kids, had left the workforce, so they'd stopped earning income. Um, the husband stayed in the workforce, continued to earn income. Their superannuation grew because there were contributions being made, and their salary was going up while they were continuing to progress through their career. So what was ending up happening is that um, people were separating with husbands with very large super balances and wives with almost nothing because they'd been looking after the kids. So um, the government changed the rules and said, okay, well, superannuation can now be split. And that happened a long time ago now, probably uh, 16 odd years ago now. But sometimes people still aren't aware of that and they just um, go their separate ways and don't adjust for super. And that leads to very unfair outcomes sometimes for women. Really, this is one of those things, isn't it, Uh, that divorce can be a fast track to poverty, Uh, and not just because it's an expensive process going through the family court, but because of all of these other issues, uh, either it's a complete end to the accumulation that you are going through as a family, as Mm -hmm. husband and wife, and looking to, you know, build some wealth, uh, leave an inheritance for your children. It's either an end to that, a fast track to poverty, or it's a delay on making those things continue to advance. Uh, this, is, this is something you, no doubt you've seen many scenarios. Yeah, and it's, it comes down to something as simple as you now need two fridges, you now need two toasters, you now need two microwaves. You, you think about the cost of refurnishing a house or needing to pay two electricity bills or pay two water rates bills or all of those kinds of things add up. And there's not the buffer there of... of one person might get sick and that has an impact on their ability to earn. Well, while you're married and you're, while you're together, the other person, you're working together. The whole, the whole idea is to work together to look after each other and look after the family. When that, when that breaks down, yes, it, it rapidly can lead people in a very difficult position. Steve, a Facebook comment from Paul who says, sometimes divorce is less painful than living with a violent, unloving person who refuses to change. Do not judge what goes on behind closed doors. God gives people choices and will not interfere with them, even if such choices are destructive. Here's an interesting one for you. What are your thoughts for Paul? Uh, certainly when in situations of um, domestic violence like he's talking about and what goes on behind closed doors is a really um, difficult issue. Um, it's it's something that over the you know over my professional career has been more prominent. Uh, certainly domestic violence is given a lot more 
priority and protecting people from harm is given a lot more priority than it used to be. And I think that's a very good thing. There's a lot of people who have been um, not just physically abused, but um, economically abused. Their, their, their finances have been controlled, and that has then meant that they're very limited in what they can do. This is just an, another way in which it, um, control is exercised over people. So there are certainly situations that are very dangerous for people or just soul-destroying, crushing you know, crushing their spirit um, in a situation where they feel trapped and there's nothing that they can do about it. As Christians, we appreciate that there's biblical wisdom, mm. uh, biblical understanding. You could call it, uh, you know, people talk about a theology of how you might look at marriage and divorce and all of that. And undoubtedly, uh, across different denominations, different denominations will hold different perspectives on that. And so I often encourage people if they're thinking about, you know, what are those grounds for divorce as a Christian, mm. uh, perhaps check with your local pastor or your priest and find out what their thoughts are because uh, some churches are tougher on these things than others. Uh, some that are taking a biblical foundation, uh, oftentimes that looks a pretty tough thing. But mm. in actual fact, when you start to reflect on that, you recognize that here's wisdom from God that makes it harder to go through divorce because the benefits of remaining married and remaining strong for your family are clearly uh, head and shoulders above anything else. Do you often come into this sort of discussion when it comes around, you know, if you have Christians who are clients uh, about, you know, whether they're doing the right thing? Yes, yeah, certainly um, it's common when people have not yet separated. Like I said, when we first started talking, by the time people come and see me, often they've already made that decision. But there's the, one of the things that I sometimes find is helpful to talk through with clients is that there is a difference between divorce, which is really just the legal recognition that the marriage has come to an end, and uh, a separation, because the court draws a distinction between the two things. Um, there are rules, and in Australia we have no-fault divorce. The only ground for divorce is to live separately and apart for 12 months or more than 12 months. Um, but people need to make arrangements for care of children well before then. They often need to do things with their property well before then. And so often what my role is when I'm sitting down with people is to say, well, what needs to happen immediately? What needs to happen about the care of the kids? What needs to happen about where you're going to live? They may not have got to the point of divorce yet, but they may have separated. And it's not uncommon um, when I act for Christians or a Christian um, that they may be prepared to go through the separation and live separately but have no intention of getting divorced or if the other spouse applies for divorce, have no intention of getting remarried so that they they have to wrestle with those theological issues themselves. But I think sometimes helping them see the distinction between um, what they're doing and just putting some practical steps around it. I, I realise that that might sound like splitting hairs to some degree, but really you've got to look at the practical needs of these people. What are, what are going to happen? What's going to happen to them and to their children and to the other spouse? And, We've got to deal with the reality that's in front of us. And we come back to that idea of the negotiation. And uh, oftentimes, if that priority is really the welfare of children who are involved, uh, this idea of fact-finding uh, puts it on the table bef before both parties mm. as to how they actually deal with uh, the issues around the children. And uh, there are a lot of complicated issues there. And uh, who can actually be the best parent to be able to facilitate those things that the children will need as they growing up. That's right. And if you end up in front of a court, the court's uh, framework through which it makes a decision is what's in the best interests of these children, not the best interests of children generally, but the best interests of these specific children. And to come up with an order, the court um, looks at what is both in their best interests and what's reasonably practicable. 
So we've got to think about, okay, what information do we need to be able to make that decision ourselves? If we know that's what the court's going to do, why delegate that out to the court? Why not sit down and work out what's in the best interest of our kids and what can we do that's reasonably practicable? And so what I usually say to the parents in that scenario is you need to have a think about all of the information that each of you need to make informed decisions. Where are your kids going to school? Where are you each going to live? What time do they finish school? Do they finish later on Wednesday because they've got gymnastics or swimming or soccer training or something like that? Do you have some flexibility in your workplace? Can you finish a little bit earlier or can you work later in the days that the kids aren't with you? So just looking through those practical things, um, how often might you have to travel for work? Uh, are people's arrangements going to be easier during school holidays? Things like that. Um, what days um, could the kids go to after school hours or before school hours care? You know, those really basic kind of things. I know it seems kind of trite to say it, but if you haven't actually sat down and worked out what all of those things are, you're not going to have a meaningful negotiation. Yes, and you'll feel like you're at a disadvantage if you're being presented with all sorts of things and you've not actually prepared what Mm. you think are the ideal situation. When you've gone through all of those negotiation, uh, you know, those requirements, uh, that bit of research that you've Mm. got to do, you've you've got it all written down in front of you. These are the things that our children need. These are the the financial uh, concerns that we've got. You get to a point where you have a mediation. Now, mediation is not the same as going to court, is it? No. Although it does oftentimes include a lawyer. That's right. So there's a whole range of mediation options that are available. And sometimes even when you're in the court system, the court will still send people back to mediation because maybe new information's come to light or they might not have had the assistance of lawyers or other people in the mediation. So let's just start with the assumption that people have never been to court yet. And they've, they've narrowed down a number of the issues and they think, okay, we need to go and have a mediation. So there's a range of options that are available there when you pick a mediator. Uh, Here in in Australia, we're fortunate that the federal government funds a whole lot of mediation centres called the Family Relationship Centres. And you just, familyrelationships.gov.au is the website. You put in a postcode and that'll tell you where the closest family relationship centre is. Those centres are really good because they are, if they're not free, they're highly, highly subsidised. And they give you um, the benefit of a mediator who sits down and works through um, the situation with both of you. Often they work on a big whiteboard. Um, they write up some of the issues that are in dispute. They uh, write down the points of agreement as they're reached. And if you if you come up with something that works, they have one of those little buttons on the side of the whiteboard where it prints out. Out it comes. You sign the piece of paper and you've got a little bit of a parenting plan there, for example, about what's going to happen with the kids. The real big advantage of those organisations is is the cost. The drawback is the time. Because they're free, a lot of people use that service, and so it tends to become fairly expensive. Uh, Sorry, very time-consuming, and sometimes you need a decision quicker than that. One of the options that's a little bit more expensive but a lot quicker is to engage a private mediator. Now, that private mediator could be a lawyer. It could be a social worker. It could be someone who has a qualification recognised by the federal government as being uh, a special family dispute resolution practitioner. And when you... Uh, most uh, people who are family dispute resolution practitioners are either family lawyers or ex-family lawyers or media or, um, or social workers who have worked with separating families. So what you're really looking for there is people who have experience in the family law system because going to a, a mediation, a family relationship centre, you won't have the same, necessarily have the same experience in the mediator and you won't have the same amount of time. They usually only allow about three hours for those mediations, whereas 
um, you have a private mediator, you can be there all day or multiple days if need be. Steve, is there a role for local churches in this process of mediation? Because I know there's one uh, legal outfit, a Christian ministry, called Peacewise. Mm. I just uh, remembered that they do all sorts of good Mm. work and they'd like to see people within local churches take on some more of this type of role. Is there a role for churches when it comes to, uh, you know, being involved in a mediation process, whether it's official or whether it's informal? Yeah, look, I, I, the lawyer, the lawyer in me would say to be cautious about having um, pastors serve as mediators, simply because there's some pretty complicated legal issues that need to be navigated, and, and simply pastors won't have the experience in those legal issues. But, um, the, but pastors and other people in the church can provide a lot of other very practical support. So, simply emotional support. Most mediations will allow you to bring a support person. Uh, that can be helpful because it's just somebody else to hear the advice or hear the offers and and talk through the options with you. So that's often very helpful. Um, we were chatting just off air beforehand about the, the practical difficulties that I see for people who don't have family around. Um, if people separate and they don't have family nearby, they might live interstate or overseas, then their options for assistance are really limited. And my experience has been that um, people who have a connection with a church are in a much better position because they've just got other people who they can call on. It, it might be something as simple as having someone look after the kids so you can go to the mediation, um, not having to sort out childcare arrangements or something like that. So it could be practical support like that. People in churches are very good at offering up spare fridges and washing machines and uh, you know loans of cars and things like that to get people through those immediate crises too. Uh, wonderful benefits that come from being connected to the local church. Uh, we've been talking about making the family court the last resort. Uh, just a few thoughts here for a moment, Steve, because no doubt you'll have seen many of these sorts of scenarios. But uh, once you get into uh, the uh, negotiation, mediation, uh, you've got two people, there's animosity in there. I guess you've got to prepare yourself in some ways mentally, mm. uh, prepare yourself spiritually. If you're a Christian, you have Christian faith mm. uh, because accusations are thrown backwards and forwards. Uh, clearly, uh, somebody's telling lies somewhere uh, or maybe, you know, your accusations have to be just as strong as the other side. Uh, how do you feel about the way that the sorts of uh, interactions go on between people who are going through uh, the dreadful uh, circumstance of revo- a divorce? Look, I think having a good mediator takes a lot of the heat out because a good mediator will be able to even up some of the power imbalances in the room. Um, a good mediator who senses that the having two people in the same room is not constructive will pull them apart and put them into separate rooms, and we call that a shuttle mediation. The mediator moves backwards and forwards, and that's a helpful way of dealing with things because the the two participants, or sometimes there's more than two participants, but the, the participants can interact with the mediator talk through the issues, and then the mediator will only take one or two issues back to be dealt with at a time. So that's a helpful way of just reducing some of the conflict. That's when you have a properly trained mediator. They know those techniques of de-escalating the conflict, making sure that they're focusing only on the issues that need to be addressed. And what is the mediator, what's their goal? Uh, what, how do they know when the mediation is complete? Uh, they got a criteria, a checklist, uh, all these yeah. priorities we've been talking about. The mediator goes into the mediation and they're looking to get some sort of resolution and at the end of the day say, uh, we've worked it out. Mm. Uh, we know who's doing what. We know what responsibilities both sides. We've got worked out uh, you know, how properties are settled and who's looking after children. Uh, is the mediator working towards a list? They have a, a 
goal in mind? They don't strictly have a, a list or a goal in mind. I mean, their, their ultimate goal is to try and re- get people to reach agreement. Yep. But it's not their role to make a decision. If you're having somebody make a decision, you're in front of a judge or you're in front of an arbitrator, whereas a mediator is really just trying to broker an agreement. So they won't have a set outcome that they're looking for. What they're trying to work out is what's something that both people are prepared to live with. Um, I often joke at the end, you know, it's, a, it's probably the family lawyer's black sense of humour that uh, at the end of the day, if both people are unhappy, you've probably got a good outcome because okay. um, that's not always the case. But a good mediation usually means that both people have had to move and compromise on some points. Otherwise, someone's just bulldozed over the top of the other. So a mediator is trying to work through one of the core issues um, and how do we narrow them down? Or even if we can't finalise them all, what's the framework for then doing the next step? Do we need to come back to a mediation and try and work on these again? Do we need to gather some more information? Do people need some more time to think about it? That that might be something as simple as, okay, well, if the range at which we might finalise a property dispute is between X and Y, could I get finance? Could I refinance the mortgage to be able to do that? They probably can't make that decision in the mediation. So the mediation might be adjourned while they go off and get that information. Now, Ideally, you'd do that before you got to the mediation, but sometimes offers or options come up in a mediation and you, you can't answer them straight away. So in that situation, it's about finding a framework to continue the dialogue. Steve, another Facebook comment, this one from a listener whose name is Steve, who says, I'm on a page, Dads Who Care, and the systems seem to only be geared one way, all A woman has to do is claim abuse and the guy spends years trying to prove he's innocent. It's always a claim recommended by her lawyer. The whole system is at war on the family. What are your thoughts for that sort of comment? Look, Steve's comment there is one that I hear quite regularly and it is very hard to to argue with some of the logic of what Steve says because... um, Family law is a complicated area and it's a very slow process. And so when accusations are raised, courts naturally want to proceed cautiously, particularly when there's allegations of risk against children. So um, I think I said before that in the time that I've been practising, domestic violence has become more prominent as an issue. Uh, Certainly in Queensland, the definition of domestic violence, the categories of domestic violence have been um, redefined in broader terms. And what that means is it, it catches more behaviour, so to speak. There are more things that can be um, classified as domestic violence and the standard of evidence that's required at an interim stage is very low. So it's it's not that it's easy to prove, but it's very hard to disprove. And so that um, certainly if people are pursuing things from a... Uh, from a very vindictive uh, mindset, then yes, it can be very easy to create those kinds of applications and it takes a long time for people to refute them. And there's a limited budget that people have got available to spend. And that's a a scenario they see a lot. People say, well, I've got money to spend. Do I want to spend it on the parenting issues or do I want to spend it um, defending this domestic violence allegation? The two are connected, but there's only a limited budget to be able to spend on on either one of those uh, fights. So it can be very difficult. Well, Steve, our time has almost run out, and I wonder whether it's worth just in these last couple of minutes of our conversation uh, just recounting some of the challenges here and some of the things that you might put in place. And we talked about communication. We talked about, you know, forming how you're going to present in a negotiation, and then uh, you move on to this mediation. So uh, your thoughts just quickly as we sum up some of these things. You do want to avoid uh, at all cost having to go to 
to the family court mm. because of the whole issue we talked about, the time factor, the cost factor, the the way that it will tear you apart emotionally. Mm. Uh, your thoughts just quickly for listeners about uh, avoiding the family court. Look, I'd say get a, get as much um, expert advice as you can. Don't ask your friend who's been through the process because their fact scenario is going to be different to your fact scenario. So speak with an expert about the process, whether that be um, – psychologist, whether that be a family lawyer, whether that be going to a mediation organisation, speak with an expert about what's really likely to occur. If you're going to sit down with a lawyer, sit down and ask them to map out what the process looks like. Ask them for details about how long it's going to take. Ask them about the costs. Ask them how long it's going to take um, to go through a mediation and how much it's going to cost. How much might it cost if I go to court? Lawyers have got an obligation to give all of that information to you in writing. So go and ask for those details at the get-go and ask them to give you the framework of how a court's going to make a decision. Because once you understand the framework, then you can start thinking about it and, and saying, okay, if this is what's going to happen, how much of this can I start gathering information about? Or hang on, I don't want to go down this path at all. It's a lot cheaper to go and engage a counsellor and see whether we can work through these issues with a counsellor rather than than a lawyer. So, I think getting expert advice and asking them uh, asking for that advice to be you know cost estimates and time estimates to be given to that, I think, is a great way of ascertaining what you're facing. And and as one last point, I would encourage listeners to you know if you've got a good marriage or if you've got a marriage and things occasionally go a little rocky, uh, get into some marriage enrichment. Mm. Uh, lock in with your local church. Good relationships within church. Sometimes there are older people in church who've had wonderfully successful marriages and they are full of wisdom as mm. to how you can work through the issues that you're going through so that you can get onto a trajectory where you can have a lifelong and happy marriage. Uh, of course, uh, we're uh, as we're saying, these things don't always happen and sometimes you need, need to be uh, listening to these sorts of conversations today. But uh, get strong in your marriage. Do all you can to enrich your marriage so that you can be resilient and resist those things that might uh, lead to any sort of breakdown. Uh, Steve Potts, always so good getting your insights. Uh, down to earth, practical, uh, scary in some respects. Uh, you've come and give us a, a little bit of a fright here as to just how serious it is to have to go through these processes of divorce. Uh, my prayer is that listeners uh, will be on a new thought uh, direction as to how they can strengthen their marriage and uh, for the sake of their children and for the sake of growing their wealth uh, to be able to leave an inheritance, a wonderful inheritance to their children into the future. Mm. Let me point people to uh, the website where you can be in contact with Stephen Potts. He is a family law specialist. He's also the managing director of Newman and Turnour Lawyers in Brisbane. There is a website, NT Lawyers. Easy to remember, ntlawyers.com.au. Stephen, thank you so much for uh, all the great times that you've come in through the year. Uh, this will be the last one for this year, and undoubtedly we'll get an opportunity to talk again in the new year. But uh, the happiest and holiest of Christmas to you and your wonderful family. Uh, just uh, congratulations on all these children. Seems to be a new one on the way every time <laughs> I talk to you. But uh, just wonderful talking to you. Thank you so much for input today. My pleasure. Thanks, Neil. Before you go, thanks for listening. There's lots more great audio on demand, or you can listen to us live at visionradio.org.au. And remember, Vision is listener-supported. Your donation, large or small, will help us continue connecting faith to life for hundreds of thousands of people across Australia and around the world. Learn more or donate today at visionradio.org.au.